Thank you for having us. It's been a long time uh, since uh, we were here, and back then none of our kiddos were married, and now four of them are, and of course there were no grandkids, and now there's nine, so I'm, I'm a grandparent uh, big time, and uh, more on the way, and, uh, and possibly some more marriages on the way here, it looks like, could be uh, before, before too long. So uh, what a, a lot has taken place, and um, good to, uh, to see Sue Lunsford. I, I do remember back in Nooksack, Sue, you're right there on the piano, and there you are today. That's great. And uh, Dave uh, is a precious brother, and good to see you. Uh, and uh, then to meet uh, again uh, Dr. Polson. Uh, Dr. Polson, I, I, I assume that there's an honorate doctorate there, isn't there? Uh, I call him Ralph a lot too. So, <laughs> so anyway, and Margie, good to see you. So uh, very good. Um, but uh, let's let's get into uh, looking here at, at God's word. But before we do, let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, look into what God's word says. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you and thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for working in our hearts and, and doing a good work. Thank you for the good work you're doing here at First Baptist, Lord. And thank you uh, for the faithfulness of uh, Dr. Polson, uh, Ralph, and uh, for, uh, for Dave, and uh, just uh, the good heart he has and his commitment to your word. And Lord, we just pray that we would uh, be true to your word today, uh, that we would honor it, that we'd honor you and love you. And, uh, Lord, might we be encouraged and challenged to love and live for you. Uh, might our hearts grow deeper. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, good. Well, let's, um, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and um, look at a little bit what we have to say here. I'll, I'll, I'll read, read the scripture in just a little bit. But, um, you know, uh, we live in a, a country, and I think uh, many of you realize that uh, things are changing here in America. Um, and I, I, I prepared and studied this passage uh, probably with a, with a, a heartache uh, for our country, for our people, and really uh, just, uh, Lord, what's happening? What's going on? Uh, I just want to understand that more. I want to get a perspective. I, I did that, and I wanted to study the believer's armor, the spiritual warfare that the scripture speaks about. I want to just get a, a thought. So this was a, a message not for, for First Baptist in per se, but yes, it is. Uh, but it was something that uh, I was on my heart to want to study and to prepare. Uh, I'm well aware that uh, there's, um, there's a lot of uh, different beliefs and thoughts on spiritual warfare. And I understand some of it's way out, um, uh, but uh, it's not only uh, from a Christian perspective uh, that there's so much that's out there that's uh, maybe uh, certainly not all biblical. Uh, and there's other religions and other uh, what we may call cults and that that have their own ideas of uh, what this is about, about the battle and everything. Um, it wasn't uh, long ago, uh, there was a professor over there at Biola who I've gotten to know, and he wrote a book. Uh, his name is Clinton Arnold. I don't know if you know him at all, but uh, he wrote a book, and he was talking about some of the beliefs that, uh, came, that came about that are there uh, in their area in California. And, uh, and so, uh, so uh, there, uh, some of the things of uh, spiritism and the warfare that's involved in that way uh, on how another religion deals with those things. And so... Uh, part of that was uh, the wife was sick one story came out, and part of uh, dealing with, with it was burning paper money. I, I don't understand that, but it was burning paper money in order to help her. And, um, and then uh, that didn't quite work, so then there were some sacrifices of pigs. Eventually there was a, three, a three-month-old German shepherd puppy that was sacrificed, and pretty soon the police was over. And uh, so you, you have different things from different uh, uh, religions and all that that are all around us, and that comes with the influx of lots and do- lots of different religions and such that have come our way that have been here. Um, but some in our own area that we talk uh, think about that are connected with Christianity, um, we uh, we do need to to be careful about. There's one uh, uh, group uh, that uh, basically took the English dictionary 
And every time it found something that was a bit evil or wrong, they, they said this is equated with a spirit of a demon. Uh, so whatever it was, and so uh, they came up with 5,700 or so or more than that of, of uh, demonic influence, and some of that was the, uh, the, the uh, spirit, the, the demonic of ac- acne and, and uh, other things like that, some things that were pretty uh, you know, amazing. And so, um, so you see those kinds of things. So I don't want to uh, definitely uh, get into that part of it, um, but I do want to look at this idea of spiritual warfare and what we need to do and, uh, as we have opportunity to look a little bit at the armor. Now, one thing we as Christians need to do is that we need to come in dealing with the warfare, dealing with uh, this area, is that we need to come from a spirit uh, of the Lord and of a position of strength because he is a defeated foe, right? The Bible would teach that. Um, in Colossians two fourteen and 15, it says, Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had dis- disarmed the rulers, authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so we are victors in Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory, right? Uh, and then it says uh, in 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in who? In you than he who is of the, of the world. Right. So we need to come from a, a perspective in the warfare that we face We come from a perspective of strength. And so with that, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. And starting with verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all these, in addition to all, taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And of course, it goes on there and talks about the importance of prayer. So that's no less important, but I'm going to kind of confine our, our, our thoughts here uh, to the passage I've just read. Now, in really, uh, in myself wanting to understand this passage, get a better handle of it, um, I, uh, wanted, I looked a little bit more into the background of Ephesians and uh, was pretty amazed uh, to be reminded of some things as well as learn some things that I, I never really just put it all together, or at least somewhat together anyway in my mind. And so I'd like to get a little bit of the background and just give you an idea that really, you know, the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about when he talked about spiritual warfare. I mean, when you look at what took place there in Ephesus and the background all to it, not only because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the scriptures, he wrote from experience on this topic right here. So uh, a a tremendous, uh, the right person, really, that uh, needs to speak on this. And, and it's good because he cuts through everything and gets down to a lot of important things, which I think are important to all of us today. So with that, let me give you a little bit of background to the, to the book of Ephesians. So first of all, the book of Ephesians is the byproduct of his ministry. He, be, he went there on three different occasions, and the church was born, and there were believers there, and and, but a lot of things happened that took place in that city. It was a strategic city, commercial center of Asia Minor. And um, I think when Paul looked at Ephesus, he, thought, he saw it through a Christian worldview. And we use that term today a lot. We use it there at Lagos. We talk to schools, talk a lot about classes with a, with a Christian worldview. Uh, kind of a term wasn't used in my day, but I hear it a lot today. 
And, and, and Paul saw through the eyes of God as he saw a city. Just as you would look here at Ferndale, you'd see your city through the eyes and, uh, of the Lord, through the lenses of Scripture. Uh, and, and I think that he looked at that, and it, it really moved him. In fact, if you've got a moment, turn to Acts 17, verse 16, where it says, Paul was walking in Athens, and it said this, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So Paul looked at cities differently than most people look at it, maybe a lot different than we as Christians sometimes look at it. And he saw the tremendous needs. He saw the things that were in front to God, and these things really moved him. You know, if, if I uh, think in my fleshly way, maybe I could think of uh, the places where I might want to be if I were living in that time, and I might have said, boy, this might have been a great place. Ephesus might have good, been a good place, protected by the Roman government, very much uh, good jobs. All those things were a part of that city, but underlying a lot of things, there was definitely uh, the forces of darkness that were over that city. Um, they had a main route from, from uh, Ephesus to Rome and to Alexandria. And so there's a lot of commercial going back and forth. People could move and move from this city to that. It was just a free access. They were a free city-state. In other words, Rome trusted them, gave them their freedom, uh, but they were very committed to the Roman government as a city. And so also in that city... Um, not only did they enjoy the political importance that was there, uh, but they also had the, what was called one of the seven wonders of the world, which was the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Diana. And with the Temple of Diana, which you had the seven, one of the seven wonders of the world, it was a great prestigious, a great uh, kind of a temple that people were very proud of in that city. I remember the day before the first Super Bowl, uh, I was uh, on the uh, freeway, and there was the Seattle Seahawks Stadium, and it's just kind of a, a bit of pride, just kind of, boy, that's the Seattle Seahawks Stadium, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, and, you know, they call that our football team. But with, with, the, uh, with the city of Ephesus, there was that sense of being very proud of this uh, particular temple. But with that temple came a lot of occultic practices. Uh, the magical arts and people were involved with uh, the occult in that city there, and it was pretty infiltrated uh, all through the city. So there was that element that, uh, that Paul began to understand and discern. So, so the city was, uh, had some of these things to it, and so when we come to uh, Paul making his first visit, we see that he... Uh, he came, first of all, in Acts 18, 18 through 21, and there he visited, and he went into the synagogues, and he had a chance to uh, uh, share there a bit, and uh, was there for a short time. They asked him to stay, but at that time, he wasn't sure if that was God's will. He said, I'll come back if God, God willing, but he left, and uh, so that was his first opportunity over there in that city, and then there was a second visit, and in this second visit, it was during his third missionary journey. He was there for two and a half years. And he met some of the believers who had experienced the, uh, the baptism of John the Baptist. And, and these people hadn't yet really uh, understood that the Messiah had come. And so he met this. This was his first assignment. He led them in the way of Christ, uh, baptized them, and they became believers, of course, in Jesus Christ. And so that was the start of some really exciting things that happened. And after that, uh, he engaged in a pattern of evangelism that just is, is, is a marvel. Uh, I think uh, when we look at Paul as an evangelist, I'm sure he looked at every person that came to Christ was like a web. And in that web is, is, is Jane and, and Joe and the, all these people that are connected with it. Do you remember what it said about the household of Cornelius? His household was, he and his household were, saved, were brought to the Lord, many of them anyway. And so as people were getting saved, it spread out into the various other places in the city, 
And uh, there was a great, great awakening uh, to the Lord. Let's look at Acts 19.10 real quick. Just take a look at that. It says, this took place for the period, this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So people were getting saved in this city, and certainly when people come to Christ, Satan begins to wake up, doesn't he? When God is using you in your life, he's using me, he's using you, he's using a church, uh, he kind of, it's not that he never sleeps, he does it. But he gives some special attention and say, and he's concerned his kingdom is being dented. His kingdom is being, and so, so this is beginning to happen. People are coming to Christ. Now look at verse, uh, Acts 19, look at verse 11. Now keep in mind, Paul was an apostle. He was given special gifting as an apostle. And there were some extraordinary miracles coming from Paul, from God through Paul. It says in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried from his body to the sick, and the disease left him, and the evil spirits went out. Now, there's a first look there. There's uh, evil spirits in the town. And then you come to verse 13, and some of the people are seeing this, and they say, well, if Paul can do it, we can do it. And so there were the sons of Sceva, and it says in verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so it says there in verse 15, uh, 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And then verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? And uh, that evil spirit attacked them, they ran out, they fled. Uh, and uh, the, the, the city, the news went out, they saw the difference between the... Paul and, 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 and his religion and his, his uh, commitment to Christ and these others who were not able to do anything and yet were even attacked. And that went out, and pretty soon more and more came. In fact, you look at verse 17, it says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So... So God's moving. Uh, there's this warfare that's going on in the city. Uh, the Temple of Diana, uh, people trying to do what Paul was doing. And there were demonic influences that were being dealt with by Paul through the Lord. And so things are happening. And it says like in verse 18, it says, Many also of those who believe kept coming, and look at it, it says, Confessing and disclosing their practices. Every once in a while, as a kid growing up, uh, saved when I was 19 years old, I remember there were times when uh, there were uh, times where God dealt with us, and I remember uh, youth pastors that I had and all that, and they led us into the burning of things that were kind of occultic, that were wrong, and we'd had these book burning, we had these record burning things, they had records back in those days, you know, and uh, we had those kinds of things, and, and it was a wonderful thing to see that. Well, that's kind of what was going on right here. They were burning all this stuff, and they were uh, confessing and getting right with God. Verse 19 says, And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them. Well, what kind of books were they? Well, they weren't just fiction books. They were occultic books. How, uh, how, how to cast spells, things like that. Uh, they were, they were that, those kind of books in uh, and it says, they brought their magic books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So it was a great, great movement right there, and people were getting right with God. So things beginning to happen. New converts were confessing and their evil deeds, confessing their evil deeds, bringing, uh, responding to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. Uh, they brought forward all their demonic tools, and then thirdly, there began to become this opposition from the kingdom of darkness to begin to uh, uh, deal with this as Satan strikes back. And so we see Satan striking back there in Acts 19, 23 through 28. So it says, About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of, 
of Artemis, that's the temple of Diana, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And so the very economy of the city was tied in uh, to uh, the occult. Uh, The occult was the major producer of commerce in the city of Ephesus, or at least very well could have been. And it says in verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Now, it's interesting, if you were to go, we won't take the time, but if you went to the book of Timothy, you'll find where Timothy talks, uh, or Paul's writing to Timothy, and talking about the love of money being the root of all sorts of evil. Many have pierced themselves with the pang, with the misuse of that. And probably what he was dealing with was Paul wrote to Timothy, who was then the pastor at Ephesus, probably dealing with this idea of Christians maybe going back into that commerce, to that earning, uh, earning their wages through these occultic things. So there was a strong warning in the book of Timothy. So it's interesting as you tie these things and understand these things uh, that there very well could have been that angle from it. So on it goes right here. It says in verse 26, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God's that, that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into dis, uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great guard, goddess Artemis, or Diana, be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And a great a riot took, a, took place. And, uh, and so uh, there was a great uproar. So, so that's a little bit of the background of Ephesus. The, the, Paul's the person who went and was in this, and he writes about spiritual warfare. He writes about the believer's armor. He writes and says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and authorities. He's the guy that is saying this. He's the person who's been through this. And so he comes from a real uh, place of authority on the subject. Certainly, mostly, the Holy Spirit was using to write this book of Ephesians. So that's who we're talking about. Now, you get to the, uh, the third visit, and... There are some other things that uh, take place, but he's talking to the elders, and he basically says, you know, be careful, uh, uh, shepherd the flock of God. He talks about other people coming in. He explained his ministry. He didn't take anybody's material things. He was very, very careful how he lived his life and how he ministered. So that was the third context. So we see those three things when he was there. Now, let's, um, let's now transition a bit into... Ephesians now. And let's get a little look here of what he's writing. And so this is pretty, pretty important. So he's writing from experience. And the very first thing he says is finally. <clears throat> now he says finally, because uh, we're at the end of the book of Ephesians. I, I was hoping to put a, I was thinking of uh, bringing up Lagos and doing something to show you something pretty interesting, but I, I decided not to do that. Uh, but anyway, I'll just tell you, uh, when you look at the commands of Scripture, where God commands us to do things, um, we find in the book of Ephesians, through chapter 1 through 3 to through that half of chapter 4, there's only one command in those three and a half chapters. You get past those three and a half, the latter part of chapter 4, and then 5 and 6, then you all of a sudden, uh, if I were to show you, it lights up like a Christmas tree. We'd light up every one of those commands, and all of a sudden you see, wow, what's, why isn't it the first part? And all of a sudden, why is it, do we have all these commands at the second part? And so um, it says here, and here's one of them, here's one of those commands, those imperatives, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So... The very first thing he gives is general principle of being strong. It's one of those commands that come at the latter part of the book of Ephesians. 
And he says there's two things. He says, be strong in the Lord. And the second thing is the strength of his might. Now, I kind of thought maybe that's a kind of a parallelism. Maybe that's saying the same thing twice. Maybe it's saying, be strong in the Lord. And by that, I mean in the strength of his might. That very well could be. Um, I'm inclined to see it a little bit different. I'm inclined to see there's a place where we as Christians grow strong. And I look at that first three chapters of Ephesians where we're in Christ. We're learning about who we are. We're learning our identity in Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been predestined. All these different things that it says that we are, and we're growing to understand. That's growing strong. We understand who we are as people. And then there's that place where... As you gain that strength, there's going to be the time when Satan attacks. There's a different kind of strength, I think, that is needed there. Let's, let's use basketball for an illustration. Um, when, when we condition for basketball, we condition to get strong. And so we would run, we'd run sprints, we'd run up and down the, the bleachers, and uh, we just got stronger, we got stronger. And then there would be the idea of, okay, you're doing that. You're getting your, your training up. Now we're also going to get you strong in game day preparation. So we would do some drills that were basically would copy what you do on the basketball court. And so we'd go over that, go over that. So we gained in strength and knowledge that way. And then there came the actual game day, right, where you had to do it, where you had to exercise the strength in the game, and so when I look at the strength of mind, I just trace that idea of might. It seemed to carry, sometimes they're interchangeable, so I don't want to make a big deal of it, but I do see sometimes when you look at the strength of his might, it's the very day, I would call it the day of deliverance. It's the day that the Lord works. He, he, he works in a way where, where there is an attack. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. It's no temptation has overtaken you, such as what? common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide what? The the, the escape. That's right. So is the Lord providing the escape every day? Well, certainly in situations that's true. But there is that place where we look toward him and we look toward him in the area of escape. Now, if you look down Look at, verse, um, look at verse 13 in Ephesians 6. It says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in what? In the evil day. Okay. Is that every day? I don't think so. I think it's the time where Satan and his minions... Uh, says, this is the time that I'm going to put extra temptation. I'm going I'm to tempt. I'm going to try. I'm going to discourage. I'm going to bring doubt. All those things on the Christian. So it even talks here about the evil day. If there is the evil day, there is the day of deliverance also, the day of escape, right? So you got both of those. And then... Not only do you have the day of escape, uh, the day of evil, uh, the day of the two coming together, and it tells us there in verse 13 that we're to resist in the evil day. Now, we'll look at the armor here in just a bit. I don't know if we'll get through them all. Uh, I've got one particular one I will cover uh, if we don't get to every one of them. But there's one. I want to talk about the shield of faith in particular. But a couple of the armors, parts of the armor, means that we have it on all the time, never to take it off. There's a couple of the armors, parts of the armors, that you don't have on all the time. Uh, we don't always have the helmet of salvation. When I was a uh, baseball player, uh, we had our uniform on, we had all this, but I didn't always have the bat in my hand. I didn't always have the ball in my hand. There's a couple parts of the armor. You have it close by, but you're ready to take it. And so the Roman soldier, of course, had some of these things. 
and they kept him close by, and there was attack, come on, they put on the helmet, put on the shield, and went, went. So I see a couple of those that aren't meant that you're using it every second of your life, and, uh, and that, again, I think, lends to this idea there's a specific time when he will attack, okay? So that's what I see right there. Now, so it says, be strong. He says, put on the full armor of God. And he tells us a number of times to stand firm. Don't lose your ground. Hold your ground. There's a sense of urgency. He implies, hold your ground. And then he says, again, in verse 12, he says, or verse 11, he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, I'm going to try to work this. I'm not too uh, sure how this works here, so somebody can help me out a little bit. But I'm going to push a few buttons and see if... Oh, we got it right up there. So, do I push the larger button to move it? Okay, great. Well, just to show you, first of all, as you look right up there... And that's really nice. I can see it right there, so it's like I'm still looking at you. (laughs) That's great. Now, again, as we look at warfare, a lot of people, including myself, have kind of looked at it like you see right up there. I understand the flesh. I'm tempted to the flesh daily. Uh, I understand the world. It's tempting. I just didn't know much about the devil, (laughs) Uh, and I was that, that little spot right up there where there's a devil, and my bigger temptations came from the flesh and the world. That's how I saw it. And that's how a lot of people say it, and so it's easy to kind of push them aside. And so I think that probably is an extreme that you want to be careful about. Looking at the next one, the other one is the devil made me do it, right? Everything you do, the devil made me do it. Who's the guy? There was some guy back in the past, the devil made me do it. I don't know who that guy was, but I, I remember that phrase as a kid growing up. Who is that? Flip Wilson. Wilson. Okay, great. So so there's that extreme, and I think there's those kind of ministries out there that just go overboard in this area that I just say, hey, be careful about, be careful about that, and I don't intend in any way today to to want you to go there, Uh, but there's some that just see devil in everything, And, and and a lot of the temptation we go through is simply in my flesh. He had nothing to do with it, and a lot of it is the world, the traction of the world. So we have to be careful that way. The other one right here is the balance. There's the flesh, the world, the devil, and, and more of a balanced look. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to aim for today as I share with you. There's that balance. So, so we, we want to keep in mind that. Now, keep in mind as we think about testing, there's two kinds of testing in the scripture. Let's take a look at that. Um, you see the first one right there? where it says uh, two kinds of testing, and there's the kind of testing that's a trial, okay? Now, we all go through trials. Um, A trial is a situation designed by God in order to bring you closer to him, okay? Now, keep in mind when we sometimes even talk about the day of evil, the day of deliverance, the very same trial can be, Satan can be working it one way, God can be working it the other way. And so, uh, as we look at it as a trial, you know, God's perfecting us. He's growing us. He allows trials in our life. What does he say in, in James chapter 1, verse 2? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So God does some great things. If I could ask you how many you are going through trials, many of you would raise your hands. Some of you say, I just finished one, and, and probably tomorrow, another one of you, many of you would be entering into a new trial. Uh, trials are there, and they will be there, and it says, consider all joy, my brethren, when. Not if, but when. Trials are part of our life, and God means it for our good. And so a lot of trials come uh, for our good. And then there's another one right here um, where it says, a temptation, a situation designed by Satan in order to draw you away from God. And the verse right there is, no t- 
is, is uh, James 1.13. It's the same Greek word. It's used for trial. It's used for temptation. It's the same Greek word where it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So that's important to understand because what we go through, we want to understand. Now, sometimes it's totally Satan that he does something. Sometimes it's a combination where God's bringing it for good, but, but Satan and his minions are coming in and trying to work it in a way where it actually harms us. So, so keep in mind two kinds of temptations. So it's not a sin to be tempted. Uh, if you've been uh, tempted, you've been attacked, uh, it, it, it's not a sin. Uh, in fact, the more I believe that a person commits and does the work of God, like the Apostle Paul we see there, you can bet that the, the enemy is going to come in in great force. We'll never outgrow temptation. No temptation is taking you such as uh, common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. And so uh, it involves trials, temptations on your strength. It's, it involves it on your weaknesses. It comes in both ways. When we're on the mountaintop, isn't that a time when something comes? And uh, so whether it's weaknesses or strengths, temptations will come. Uh, they're not the same for everybody. Uh, there are some things that I will never be tempted in. Uh, that somebody else will, and there's things I will be tempted in that other people will not be tempted in. And so uh, we are made differently. We all shape differently. Our gifts determine this somewhat. Uh, our, there's a lot of things that go into that, so uh, uh, it's going to be different for different people. And then these temptations come from my own flesh, as we look, looked at. It comes from the world, and it comes from the devil when it is tempting us to sin. So why does God allow temptations? God gives us the necessity of a choice. We have the choice to show him that we love him. And temptations show us what we are. They show us where we stand. They show us where we're going to be in the future if we don't change. So there's, there's temptations will show us. You know, sometimes I get a, a, a tea bag, and I don't know what that tea bag is. Is I don't know what kind of a tea, tea bag it is, but when you put it in the hot water, the boiling water, you soon find out, right? And so when we go through the hot water of life, it finds out and shows us what we are. So there's a revealing process that goes that way. So uh, it's, it's a choice that is essential for character building. It's an opportunity for growth. Every time I choose right, I'm growing in my character, and I can say that I'm honest. If I'm honest, I can say, um, you know, that, that often uh, God will take and work a trial and also produce good in our life. Now, let's look at the way that he does tempt. I'd like you just for a moment to turn to 1 John 2.16. Get a little idea. That's kind of the, one of the things I wanted to show you is give you kind of an, out, uh, an idea of the schemes of, of Satan, how he works and how he tempts. Because it says we are not to be what? Ignorant of his devices. Um, we're, he, he warns us in this chapter here to, to know and beware of the schemes of the devil. So let's look at a couple of ways he does that. Three kinds of temptations are found in 1 John 2.16. Let me just read the verse to you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So let's just look. First of all, there's the lust of the flesh. What's the lust of the flesh? Okay, now, I believe that he will use that. Now, we can be tempted in the flesh, and it might not have anything to do with Satan. It's just simply our fleshly appetite. But I just believe sometimes he sees us. He'll work that in our life and bring up things and tempt us. So he can be involved with that. Let's get an idea a little bit what the lust of the flesh is. So looking right there, it's the temptation to feel and do. When I feel like I want something, uh, when I do something. Now, it's right. These are sometimes many God-given desires that are right, but overbalanced uh, uh, to, to do things that we shouldn't. Uh, there is the idea that's there as far as the temptation to feel and do. So that's the flesh at work. It's, it's the idea of the desire to indulge. 
okay? Desire to indulge. Uh, it's the idea where there's passion. So there could be sexual temptations. There could be the passion for revenge, to get even. That's the idea that we talk about when we talk about the lust of the flesh. So there's another one there, and that is the lust of the eyes. I used to always mix those two up. But the lust of the eyes is the temptation to have. I see something, I want it. I kind of think of Samson as kind of those two. He, he lusted, and then he says to his parents, get, me, get her for me, you know? And so you almost see two of them right there. But you see this idea of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes being the temptation to have. And then there's the desire to increase. There's the desire to increase. In other words, there's this desire, and it can turn into an evil desire, where <clears throat> maybe the Bible says, I want you to be content, but we're not content. We want more. And so there's the desire to increase if used in a wrong sense. And then there's the idea of possession. So I wanted to possess. And so we look at the lust of the flesh, get a little idea of that. It's the passion, the desire to do the desire to indulge. I don't have it, but I'm, I'm lusting after it. And then there's the lust of the eyes, actually, uh, to get, to possess. That's the, uh, the idea right there. And then we have the pride of life, the pride of life. And the pride of life is the temptation to be, okay? Uh, there's, there's the idea that I want to be the best. Now, I'm not saying that's always wrong, but it could be wrong. The desire to be better than that, my colleague, and done in a wrong way. So there's the idea of the desire to impress. And so there's this idea where peer pressure comes in. The desire to impress, to impress my peers. And so we do things that we shouldn't do. And then there's the idea then of position. And so it could be, even be a job, a position, maybe a position that, that uh, you go about in a wrong way. Uh, so these are some ideas that help you understand the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now let's look a little bit more <clears throat> and let's look at the temptation of Adam and Eve. Um, it says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So, so we're looking here at... Uh, at the temptation of Adam and Eve. And uh, let's uh, see if we can guess what these temptations are. So this is class time now. You're all under the gun. We're gonna, somebody's going to take notes here, who got it and who didn't, and see if you pass. No, just, but I want you to get an idea of what we're talking about here. Okay, so the very first one is the pride of life. You will be like God, okay? You will be like God. Um, Oh, wait a sec. Yeah, there we go. Genesis 3, 5, you will be like God. Okay, so there's the idea to possess, to be like God, okay? So that's part of a temptation. We've seen that pattern there in 1 John 2, 16. Now, what do you think in there is the lust of the flesh? Anybody have an idea? Okay, Just, I don't, you don't have to answer, but the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. So let's go ahead, look at another one right there. So here's the lust of the flesh. She saw that the tree was good for food. Okay? That was appealing. There was, there was this idea, you know, when I see fruit, I tell you, when I'm at, uh, fruit really gets a hold of me at home. My, my, uh, and so do cookies, for that matter. And my, I, I can be there out there, and my wife, and it reminded me when I was a kid, says, uh, hey, you, um, you know, get your hands off that. That'll come later. And... Um, and I says, well, I'm just in the kitchen looking. Well, you need to get out of the kitchen, you know? I mean, <laughs> so, but anyway, there's this lust of the flesh. And you see it right here. She saw that the tree was good for food. So we're seeing a pattern. We're seeing, hey, this is true in Scripture, okay? Now, the other one right here is the lust of the eyes. Uh, it says, and that it was a delight to the eyes. 
and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So we see a pattern here that often is that Satan is predictable. Temptation is predictable. If I thought that there's a thousand and five hundred temptations out there and it says that I'm not to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil, I don't know how I would ever be able to handle that. But when I can pretty well put it in a predictable pattern, this is how he works. It helps me. And that's the idea of what we want to do here today is help you see that. Okay, so let's go at another one, the fall of Satan. This one's a little harder. Um, uh, be honest, I see all these I wills. I will, I will, I will. You know, pride of life. <laughs> that, that's probably, but there's a little element of the other ones, I think, that are in there. So let's just look at them right here. Uh, so we look at the fall of Satan, the lust of the flesh. I will ascend to heaven. Um, there were some things in heaven that he desired. Uh, so that could be a, a possibility right there. The lust of the eyes. I will exalt my throne. In other words, I will exalt my throne. In other words, when I get there, there's some things that I want to possess. That could be a possibility. So you might see that there. And then the last one is the pride of life. I will be like the most high. Pride is all through it, of course. And you see, though, that these temptations are coming through right here. Let's look at another one right here, Moses, okay? And so we look at Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. <clears throat> it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, Pharaoh's daughter, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Which one do you think is that one? Okay, okay. I heard a couple, so I'm not uh, commenting right there. So another one right here, well, the pride of life, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? Boy, hey, you know, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Could be pretty proud. And so uh, we see that Moses rejected that temptation, okay? The other one here is the lust of the flesh, the passing pleasures of sin. So it says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. There's that pleasure. If, it, if that temptation took hold, there was pleasure. This is passing. This is enjoyable. This is a good feeling. But it, he rejected that, okay? So he won the temptation. And then the last one there, it says, considering the approach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. And so there's the lust of the eyes, okay? So again, I want to help you see Satan is predictable on how he might. Now, granted, I don't think he's involved in all these all the time, but he will use this, and, I, and this is a pretty predictable pattern, how he tempts. Now, everybody's trials, everybody's temptations are going to have a different color to it. When you get back to it, it does come a lot of times to these three basic ones right here, okay? So um, real quick. Let's move on again. I think we're done there. So um, just a few more things on this right here. Um, we, we, could, we could go on on this. We could look at the worldly philosophies today. Uh, we could look at the philosophy, if it feels good, just do it, hedonism. Materialism, get all you can. Secular humanism, which is the pride of life. Look out for number one, secular humanism. You do it, I'm doing it for me, and you... And, and nobody else. And so you see even world philosophies that really come in this. It helps me evaluate what's going on in America when I understand these temptations. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And there's principalities and powers that are wrecking havoc in the world today. And I see it basically working in these areas of temptation. And then another one, when you think about the lusts of the flesh, that idea of desire, it's challenging the sufficiency of God. When I have the lust of the eyes, it's challenging the sanctity of God. I'm setting apart an idol instead of setting apart God in Christ. And then I look at the pride of life, it's a challenge to the sovereignty of God. It's putting me on the throne rather than God on the throne. And then you come to a verse like 1 Corinthians 13, 13, if you want to turn it real quick. It says this, but now abide but now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
When you look at the lust of the flesh, it's that idea of passion, it's desire of feeling. When used in a wrong sense, it leads to temptation and sin. Love is the victory in that. Love gives rather than takes. You look at hope. Uh, Our hope is stored in heaven. Um, Part of our salvation, the glorification of the Christian, we look for the hope of Christ. We look for the hope someday that we are going to be with him. It's not a hope that maybe is. It's a hope that's for sure. It's the security of the believer. And and that uh, deals with the lust of the eyes. It is the opposite of that. And then we look at faith. Faith depends on God. doesn't depend on self. So we look at these, and it says the greatest of these is love. Well, there's going to come a day where our hope is there. We don't need a hope anymore. We have it. And we don't need faith anymore because we have it when we're with Christ. But the thing that will always be there is love. The greatest of these is love. So, so you see that right there. Now, take one last turn. Go to Matthew 16, 24. And it says, then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice the lust of the flesh is give in to your desires, the wrongful desires. Jesus said, deny yourself. He said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You have the take up the cross, and the cross at that time, you know, we, we wear crosses today, beautiful symbol. Uh, I'm sure that you go to work, many of you, you'll have a cross. But back in the day when Christ had died and a little bit after that, that was a shameful emblem. Uh, it, it represented uh, some of the most horrific things that could happen to a person. And, and certainly the believers bought in it. You'll see the crosses and the catacombs and all that. But it had a whole different meaning of really what it meant. And so the cross here basically is a denial of yourself. It's, it's willing to take what God, what, what, what Christ took, we're willing to do. Take up your cross. Be willing to give your life for, for the Lord. So it deals with the pride of life. And then he says, follow me. It deals with the lust of the eyes. And so uh, we see this pattern time and time again in the scripture. Now, real quick, let's go to the armor, and we've got seven minutes. There's, there's a lot of armor to cover. And so I, I kind of knew I would fall short on this. I apologize. You know, I put in my message title, The, uh, the Believer's Armor, and I kind of thought I just would not be able to get to it, and that's true. But I felt I wanted to lay a foundation a little bit of temptation, the schemes of the devil, which is in our passage right here. I wanted you to, to understand that as you battle, and we all battle, to give an idea of what we could do. But as we come here, let's just look at a few things. And, and one is, it says there in, in 614, it says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, he's going to talk a little later about the word of God as part of the armor. So this idea of the belt of truth, I don't think we're dealing so necessarily with Scripture right here, but I think it's more of a, a truthful life, a sincere life, a dedication. Uh, it's, it's like the athlete is committed. It's like the soldier is committed. It's like the Christian is committed. That's the idea that we're looking here in the, uh, uh, where it says, have girded your loins with truth. And now your loins, of course, they often had robes, and I remember, as a, again, as a basketball player, coach would say, okay, get down, get your legs bent, and pull up your shorts. <laughs> it means you're ready. And, and that's the idea. They would tuck their tunics in and so they wouldn't stumble. They would hold their ground. It says in the Bible, stand firm. And with this in mind, they could do that with God's enablement. So it says there, have your loins girded with truth. The second one is put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right, now... The loins, I believe, is the idea this should always be on. This should always be on the Christian. Uh, never something that we would take off. Same way with the breastplate of righteousness. So what is the breastplate of righteousness? Well, the Roman soldiers had different types of breastplates. It was the protection of the heart, the bowels. 
And it might be imputed righteousness. It might be like in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, So Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We embrace who we are as Christians and that we have that. Or it could be this idea of practical righteousness. And... uh, and so that's, you know, I, I find out that I'm still working on that. I'm, I lean more toward the practical righteousness on this part right here. But this is something we need to constantly have on. And then we come to um, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so this is uh, an interesting one. Uh, we all know what it's like to have a pebble in our, our shoe. Uh, and it basically even a little pebble in our shoe can... Uh, well, these, uh, these shoes were thick leather strap soles, metal spikes like cleats. So, again, this idea of your firm footing in the, Christ, in the Christian life, it's like it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Think of the warfare more as a wrestling. We wrestle not, and so there's this wrestling that goes on. And, it's, and so we can hold our ground because it's, we have solid footing. And so it says having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Um, uh, in, in Near Athens in Greece... Um, there's a plane called Marathon, okay, uh, a little place called Marathon. It's approximately five miles long, two miles wide, and in 590 B.C., the Persian king Darius ordered his generals to enslave the Greek cities of Athens, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but Eritrea, maybe. The latter was destroyed and its inhabitants enslaved. The Persians then landed at Marathon, hoping to do the same to the Athens. The Battle of Marathon was a decisive battle. For if the Persians had conquered, Grecian culture might never have blossomed into the world. Against fearful odds, the Greeks were victorious. With the, when the enemy was defeated, Phidipidus, I butchered that name, <laughs> but he's a, he's a guy with a name that's hard to pronounce for me anyway. Uh, a Greek soldier and courier ran from the plains of Marathon to Athens, a distance of slightly more than 26 miles. So where do we get the miles for the Boston Marathon and others? 26 miles. This, this is a part of how that came about. Uh, to deliver a message to the magistrates. And he delivered his message. He fell, after he presented it, he fell over dead. What was his message? that the war was over and victory had been achieved. Today's marathon races commemorates the faithful soldier who announced the good news of peace. And so what it is, I, I look at it as, the gospel of peace, not necessarily, well, I, I look at it as the embracing of my, my separation from God has been taken care of. Peace has come between me and him by the embracing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was, uh, you know, I, didn't, I haven't had a lot of warf- warfare things like the Apostle Paul. Probably most of us haven't. But I had a couple. And there was one person who, uh, who uh, we, were, we were covering this topic in a sermon. And he came up to me and says, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing strange things. I'm having strange dreams. And uh, so uh, I said, well, why don't we meet together in my office? And, and uh, uh, he began to share a story. He shared his story of commitment to Buddhas and things like this. And he definitely was under occultic uh, influence. And, um, and, I, and I found out he, he didn't know Christ as his Savior. And I says, you know, Jim... Really what you need is you need Christ in your life. You need to trust him and embrace him as your savior. And, uh, and, and I, I says, I, I believe once you do this, these things could very well go away. And he embraced Christ. He received Christ. A couple days later, we met. And he said, I just want you to know that when you were sharing the gospel with me, I was about ready to attack you. That's literally what he was going to do. His fence was clenched. I never knew that. He's a big guy, bigger than me in some ways. And, and he was, but then when he embraced the gospel of peace, all of a sudden that vanished and went away. And, and, uh, 
And I, I see this as somewhat of an application right here of what happened in Jim's life uh, that, uh, that we see right there. So that's the third one. Now, keep in mind, these three are permanent. Real quick, um, now we come to ones that sometime you lay aside and you have it and you're ready for it. So let's look at them, what we mean by that. It says, in addition... Taking up the shield of faith uses a different uh, verb here. This idea not of having, but now taking up. Taking up the shield of faith, which you will now be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil ones. So we're talking about the shield of faith. Um, The Roman soldiers would always uh, be wearing his belt plate, his shoes, uh, his belt, breastplate, and shoes. But when there was a law in the battle, he might temporarily lay aside his shield, his sword, and his helmet. And so I already shared with you that same principle in sports. We can see it just as an analogy right here. Now, the Roman shield, the Roman army used several kinds of shield, that, but there's two prominent ones they kind of used. One was like a Frisbee, so you had a little Frisbee kind of sword right there. You could block, the block and you got your sword that you can work with. So you had that kind, but I think it's the other kind, the big, broad shield that we're talking about right here. Uh, and, uh, and so that measured, you know, uh, four and a half feet by two and a half feet made out of thick planks of wood covered on the outside with either metal or leather, and the metal would deflect the flaming arrows while the arrow leather uh, would treat to extinguish the fiery pitch on the arrows. I remember one time I, I loved to play with plastic, get it on fire, and watch these little missiles drop. You ever do that when you were a kid? The only thing one time is that one dropped and it hit me right on the hand, and that just did not go away. <laughs> I mean, I, I wiped it off, but it was kind of like, man, that was, <laughs> that hurt. Well, when they shot these missiles, they kind of exploded when they hit, and they would splatter, and uh, people were hit by these things. And so um, that's the idea there of the flaming missiles. Well, Satan's shooting these things uh, uh, at them. And these guys, people with the broad sh- swords, they would have them, and you'd have the, uh, the other parts of the army coming behind them, ready with the smaller shields and with their swords. And so they were going ahead kind of paving the way like a tank does, and the, uh, and the armies behind the tank, well, these were the tanks in those days, I guess you could say, and they had these big, broad shields. And so it says, take the helmet of salvation, um, take, and take the helmet of salvation. And, and so what do we mean by the helmet of sa- salvation? Well, there's the present, uh, past, and the future of salvation. Uh, I've been saved. I presently, God is sanctifying my life. And there's the hope of salvation that someday I'll realize and he's going to bring all the wonderful things that he promises to the Christian uh, where they're in our possessions but will be actually realized when we're there. And so this is the idea, I believe, of dealing with doubt, dealing with uh, discouragement. And I, I think I'm going to have to leave it there, but let me just simply say, um, when we look at these things right here, the helmet of salvation... And, uh, and we look at the shields, the shield rare, the shield of faith. Um, you look at the, the ways that God builds our faith. Um, he does it by giving us a desire of what he wants to do. When, when you have a person like the Apostle Paul and gave him a vision of what he was to do, he made a decision to obey God. So faith is understanding what God wants us to do. It's deciding what God wants to do. In every aspect, as he builds our faith, uh, Satan is going to come around also and try to destroy that faith. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. So there comes a time when he leads us, and then there's sometimes delays in our life. There's times when, when uh, you know and you believe what this is God's will, and you're involved in the work of God, and and you're, 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 you're seeing and understanding what he wants to do. You've decided to, to follow him. But then there's that delay. What's, what do we do when we get delays? It's easy to doubt, isn't it? It's easy to under, try to, try to what's, what's understand. But God works in delays. That's a part of his growth. But again, Satan will come in and try to destroy it. We need to use the shield of faith. And then comes difficulties. There comes dead ends. There comes the times when we're in a cul-de-sac there's nothing we can do, and it's for trusting God. Well, you see that all through the Old Testament. You see that in Moses. You see it in Noah. You see it in Nehemiah. You see it in David. You see it in Joseph. All these went through those very aspects of God building their faith. And then there's those times when the doubt comes in, 
and then you use the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Well, let's pray. I think I went over a little bit, but let's pray and thank the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time today. It's been a joy to be here at First Baptist. It's been a long time since uh, being here. Thank you for the good work you're doing here. Thank you for Pastor Dave and Sue and, and for, uh, for, uh, for, for Pastor Polson and, uh, and many others here are so faithfully serving you. Uh, Lord, I just uh, lift up this time. If there be any here that do not know Christ, then, Lord, uh, help them to know that they are uh, certainly being t- taken advantage by the evil one. Uh, this is his world, and he blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. And God, by your spirit, you can open up hearts and lives, and I pray you do that. And if there's somebody here who has not trusted you, that they would give their life, believe that Jesus died, rose again, and embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray you do that. And then strengthen us as Christians. Help us to not be uh, ignorant of his devices. Help us to put on the armor. We thank you. We commit it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.